0: to the marketplace. Bugs, we're back to talk about something that everyone who lives or is from Florida is very familiar with and very happy to have on Radio K this morning, uh, Dr. Philip Kohler who is a professor of urban entomology at the University of Florida. Thanks for being with us, Phil.
1: It's wonderful to be here with you.
0: Phil, Just I know if I tried to describe your technology, I would completely mess it up. So I'm going to ask you to sort of tell me a little bit about your, your core technology, your core invention, um, and explain it as if, uh, and in this case, very realistic scenario, I don't know anything about it. So. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we we started back in uh back in around 2010 or so trying to take on flies and mosquitoes as very dangerous animals that needed to be controlled because they uh, they are very important from the standpoint of human welfare. There were very few products that were environmentally uh friendly. To be able to control these uh, these potential disease vectors, and we've gotten some funding from the military in order to develop, first of all, fly traps, and second of all, uh, mosquito traps, in order to be able to control them. And we've we've developed several new technologies that have now been patented and are in the process of being commercialized throughout the entire world.
0: And so, if I understand correctly, these technologies um, they're they're mostly not. Or or, or do they have anything to do with sort of insecticides or sprays or anything? These are... Different types of pest control technology.
1: Everything that we've done utilizes insecticides. However, they are contained so that people won't contact them, and also the, uh, they're not a danger to the environment because they are contained.
0: Okay, so they're not like sprayed on a field, or, or they're more in, in receptacles or containers or things. Like
1: exactly, that. Uh, we're uh, we're putting them associated with something that the insects like to go to, so you don't have to uh, you don't have to spray large areas of land. And that was one of the things that I was concerned about back in 2015, that the state of Florida, in order to control Zika vectors, uh, they were spraying by air over large tracts of land. And in many cases, that was the only thing that they had available to them.
0: okay. so I think I, I think I understand uh, more or less, uh, and I hope our listeners do as well. so let's let's go back in time to a uh, young Phil Kohler. Uh, sort of tell us uh, your origin story, where were you from, and how did a nice guy like you end up uh, dealing with bugs?
1: Oh, I started uh, growing up in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, my family actually goes back to like 1702. They bought the farm from William Penn. So we were longstanding in the state of, uh, of Pennsylvania. However, I ended up in Florida somehow. And, and I remember when I was uh, playing Little League Baseball, I was always the right fielder, which was always the sorriest player on the team. And if a ball was hit in my direction, I would never know it because I was watching the ants crawl around on the ground. So I always have enjoyed insects in one way or another through my entire life.
0: So uh, at what point did you know you weren't going to make the majors then, Phil, pretty early on in your baseball career?
1: I was. Uh, I think the, the managers of the team hated to put me on the field. <laughs> so I think it was pretty clear I was and, not going to be And this was a... the
0: days before helicopter parents, right? So it's not like your dad stormed onto the field and demanded more playing time for you, right?
1: My dad didn't do that. He, he did not storm onto the field because I was a bad player. <laughs> so were um, either of your parents scientists at all? Neither one. As a matter of fact, my father was a minister and uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was for years in, in Pennsylvania, then uh, went to Virginia and then retired back to Pennsylvania again. So, it's, uh, so probably I have a long history of people talking in my family. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so how did you end up in Florida? Did you come here as an undergraduate or did your family have a connection here?
1: Actually, no. What What happened was I I did my undergraduate work at Catawba College, which was a, a college that was affiliated with the church that my father uh, my father was a minister in, and so I got a really good break because ministers don't get paid very much, and so I got a good break as far as cost. And then I. Uh, so I did, this is in Pennsylvania. Uh, this was in, Catawba College is in North Carolina, North Salisbury, Carolina. In North okay. Carolina. And while I was there, I was picked up for two. NSF fellowships at Oak Ridge National Lab. And I was working on chironomid midges, in other words, uh, uh, insects that grow on the bottoms of lakes. And they had a lake there that had been contaminated with radioactive waste from building the bombs for uh, bombing Japan. They had put that waste in 55-gallon drums, buried it in a hillside, and when they rusted out, they built a dam then to contain the radioactive waste. So I would walk out there in the radioactive waste, collect these midges, and then determine the, the abnormalities that were a result of radiation. So I did two summers there, and then I went to Argonne National Lab and was doing neutron activation and gamma ray spectroscopy, which is a physics project, and... I found out what I really didn't want to do in life, <laughs> which was that. So let me guess, did you, did you volunteer for
0: this, Phil? That sounds sort of like dangerous work, radioactive midges and, I mean, did somebody have a gun to your head or what? Uh... There were
1: there were many days that someone was walking behind me with a Geiger <laughs> counter to see how much radiation I was actually getting. And maybe that's they, the reason They said I'm... it was
0: a Geiger counter right there, just make sure you weren't uh, didn't turn and, and run away. And of
1: course that may be why I'm so strange today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you shifted from that um, into or did you already have an interest in entomology before that, sort of an academic interest? Or? Yes,
1: I had an academic interest okay. in entomology and actually I took my first entomology class at Catawba College. Okay. But then I went on to Cornell University and got my PhD at Cornell University. Okay, uh, I was going to be drafted into the army. They already had me uh, down for, uh, they already did my physical and were going to put me in the trenches in Vietnam and i i had the opportunity to get into the navy as an entomologist and i went in as a lieutenant uh, entomologist and spent 3 years then in jacksonville and because i was at jacksonville and and teaching classes uh, on uh, on insect control to to navy personnel uh, I I got to work closely with some of the faculty here at the University of Florida. So I ended up then uh, getting hired uh, at the University of Florida as an assistant professor back in 1975, so I've been here for 44 years. <laughs>
0: so, who knew, thanks to the U.S. Navy, you ended up in Gainesville, Florida, so...
1: <laughs> That's right. And what was interesting was I got in the Navy because they needed another entomologist to go to Vietnam to take care of the uh, some of the mosquito problems there. and. Um, and at that time, they started winding down Vietnam, and so I stayed there in in Jacksonville for my entire tour of duty. So I had three years, uh, three years there and now 44 here.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to have to start giving the Navy professional credit here because you're actually the second guest in a row. I just had a guest on, and, and his— sort of trajectory was also due to the Navy, and it was in the area of radio frequency antennas, and he had eventually went into the MRI business and so on. So, you know, go Navy, I guess. Um, uh, okay so let's let's come sort of back to where you are did not start a company with your technology, but you did license the technology and I understand there's a company in Italy that is using it
1: yeah so the so what happens at the University of Florida is uh, when you have something that you think is patentable you let the university know because they have first choice to uh, to decide whether they want to adopt it or not. The University of Florida adopted uh, these technologies and then uh, found a partner with a company that is actually managed out of Italy, but is a Florida company now. And it's called Florida Insect Control Group. And they're dedicated just to uh, commercializing the technologies that we developed. And who
0: are who are the major clients? I mean, are these sort of governments that are buying, or anybody? These aren't retail products, right?
1: Okay. the The process for this is is very long and convoluted in order to get the technologies that we have available. Because we're using insecticides, we have to go through all of the registration processes for every uh, for every country that that these products are going to be sold in. So right now, uh, we're in the last stage. The company is in the last stages of getting EPA registration in the United States and also European Union uh, registration uh, for European countries and also former colonies of those of those countries as well. So so basically the only registration that we have for use right now is in Poland. <laughs> and I have no idea why Poland. I can't even read the label on the product, but it was it was one that uh, that seemed reasonable for them to go to first. I
0: noticed also that you are, you have been inducted or were inducted into the Pest Management Professional Hall of Fame. I, I have to say you're the first inductee in the Pest Management Hall of Fame that I've met, so honored here.
1: Yes, that was that was quite an honor because they uh, they try to choose the people that have made the most outstanding contributions to the pest management industry throughout the country and throughout the world. Actually, uh, most of the uh, the the organization, National Pest Management Association, is a is not national. It's a worldwide association where they have participants from all over the world, including in India and Japan. And another thing that that I forgot to tell you was that uh, this year I'm being inducted as a fellow in the National Academy of Inventors. And oh,
0: congratulations! In Tampa, right?
1: It was first started in Tampa, but this year the the award is going to be in Houston. At at the space center there, and from what I understand, the 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 award will be passed out by the gentleman who is in charge of patents and trade for the U.S. Oh, congratulations! (laughs) So it's quite a quite an honor for me, and also I think for the University of Florida.
0: Um, Phil, if you're allowed to tell us, what are you working on now in terms of research? Sort of what's on the horizon um, in terms of your uh, sort of academic interests or. You know, and do you have anything else that you are getting ready to license or patent <laughs> that you can talk about?
1: Well, actually, um, I think that according to the University of Florida records, I have nineteen patents in the U.S. that have been issued, and probably five international, and uh, there are five more that are being issued at this point. So, so we have quite a quite a stack of them going through that are novel inventions that uh, that we're trying to bring to people to be able to manage insects that are dangerous in their own yards and and in an environmentally uh, friendly way.
0: One thought that occurred to me, Phil, is how much do you have to uh, know of or work with, um, uh, I guess, sort of like urban planners or urban designers or even sociologists? Because it occurs to me that some of the patterns in which you're dealing with, right, are are concentrations of people making decisions on where to live, and those patterns change over time, and they change... City by city, country by country. How much of your work intersects with that world in which you're you're actually looking at the sociology of the urban environment before you look at the bugs that they're yeah well
1: we haven't really worked with the sociologists all that much. Uh, what we've what we've been trying to do is work with people in material science and engineering in order to come up with formulations that can be used in the way that we want these products to be used. So by putting together the people that have a knowledge of the molecules along with the people that have a knowledge of the insects, we've been able to come up with with novel ways of approaching insect control. So one of the first uh, products that we came up with was a fly trap that was a color blue. And if you're familiar with fly traps at all they're usually yellow. Now I did not understand why they were yellow because flies always go to blue over yellow and as a matter of fact it's like two to one they'll go to blue over yellow. But most of the fly fly traps were developed in agriculture for agriculturally important pests. that are attacking plants and a sick plant is yellow. And so the, so this is the a insects carryover are from attracted the, to things that are, the, the agricultural pests are attracted to things that are mostly yellow in color. So they just went ahead and said, uh, we control flies, too. Well, guess what? Blue is a better color. So we came up with blue. And one of the things that I noticed was flies like to squeeze into small cracks and crevices. And I couldn't believe it. We grow flies at our lab, of course. and. You can put them in a plastic bag and and crinkle it up like you would a bag of potato chips. And try to uh, try to seal it off as tight as you can, and the flies would find their way out. They love squeezing into cracks and crevices, so they 're actually attracted to the blue color, and then secondarily the black color of a crack. So what we did was we put uh, we put a piece of yarn on there, treated the yarn with insecticide, and we could kill thousands of flies in a short period of time. We hung them over dumpsters, and the flies would uh, would fall dead, and we'd catch them in a tray underneath and be able to count them and It was thousands of Flies in like a twenty four hour period that you could kill with just a little bit of product on uh, on maybe twelve inches of yarn on a blue with that 's put on a blue background and they 're attracted to the blue color they think there 's a crack there because they see the black on the blue, and they go to that and there 's food there, so they eat it and they die and it 's a very nice way to be able to control flies without spraying everything around your property and around your um, your farm for fly control
0: so you you make it sound kind of easy but it, this I imagine took hours and hours of research I mean I just pity the poor gratis system who had to count all those flies right I mean this is this is how long did it take just to uh, determine, what you just told me is that months of research or is that years oh, of research? oh it was
1: years actually yeah. we started out by putting by doing electroretinograms on the flies now an electroretinogram is where you shine a particular wavelength of light onto a fly eye and you have a probe set in there so you can determine whether there's an electrical impulse going to the brain or not from that uh, from that light and then you can change the, the wavelengths of light and find out what the fly is most sensitive to. And they're most sensitive to blue. And they can see yellow, and that's and actually, that was the only color that repelled flies. <laughs> and so the the traps that are out there, uh, for the most part, are We're yellow repelling and, and repelling flies.
0: <laughs> in your experience, Phil, is there a certain personality type of people that are attracted to entomology research? Because, you know, they're animals for sure, but they're not like cute furry animals, and, and they're not plants. So have you noticed any commonalities in, you know, you and your colleagues?
1: Well, for a lot of the people, and I must admit that this goes back quite a few years, my experience with entomologists, uh, they're very much like engineers. They're socially awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And and so so it's it's rather interesting dealing with both engineers and, and entomologists as well. And it's one a little other bit thing, like
0: the the joke you know accountants will tell about actuaries and actuaries tell about accountants. Who is the more socially awkward? Is it something like that? Yeah, <laughs> and
1: maybe the entomologists have the engineers beat. <laughs> and you, you asked how many flies we had to count in order to get this thing done. It was amazing how many flies that we had to count. I had a I had a student that came to the University of Florida uh, from Thailand, and she didn't speak very much English, and I couldn't figure out what project to put her on, so I told her to count all the flies, and we had one of those traps that we had made, and we wanted to see how many flies it could kill with one charge. So we hung, the, hung that trap in a cage, and we killed flies, and, we, and we, then we would add more flies in because we couldn't get all the flies in the cage that, all at one time. we keep on adding flies as, as they died, and then she had to count every one and she spent 3 months counting flies we got up to 40,000 we were still killing 99% of the flies that we released in the cage and she had to go back to thailand so we stopped counting <laughs> but but every morning i would go in there and she would uh, she'd separate the flies out into piles of 10 and she would have the days kill there, which maybe four or five thousand uh, flies, and then uh, then count each fly individually.
0: So I can imagine <laughs> she went back and had great stories to tell at parties. You know, what did you do in the United States for three months? Well, I can't. Yes, of lied. it was an so, exciting place. Exciting place, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, hopefully, it didn't scare her off entomology. Right?
1: Actually, that information was quite valuable. I'm sure we it knew is. That yeah, we killed right. forty thousand flies yeah. with a thing with one charge, and we did that over a three. Because that's period. how you know whether
0: it's effective or not. Yeah, I we didn't have to
1: works. retreat it at all, and so it, it's been a it, that that whole process of development of that uh, of that product was was actually quite interesting and. Um, and Florida Insect Control Group uh, acquired the rights to that and is commercializing that now.
0: So Phil, you've also done some work with bed bugs. Tell me what that's about.
1: Yes, we've been working extensively with with bed bugs over the past 20 years. They started coming back in the U- US somewhere around the turn of the century, where around the year 2000 or so, uh, bed bugs came back and people really didn't have a good way to uh, to manage them. What we've done is invented a new type of trap that you can put underneath a bed and one of the things that they can't do at the hotels and motels is use traps very effectively because they underneath the mattress and box springs they usually have wood that's on the ground like a two by six uh, that is underneath the mattress and box springs as a frame well we've invented uh, a a trap that can go around those beds. And we feel that we can eliminate the bed bug problem in many of the hotels and motels that would have problems with infestations.
0: That sounds like a huge commercial potential there, right? I mean, I've known a few people who've had bed bugs, and it sounds like an absolute nightmare in terms of actually getting rid of them.
1: And the, everyone's fear is you, uh, when you travel, you stay at a, you stay at a place, and you may pick up bed bugs, and it's very easy to bring bed bugs home, and you may be faced with, uh, with a one thousand dollar or uh, two thousand dollar bill in order to have them controlled in your house. They can be much more expensive than even termites to control.
0: Because the conventional <laughs> treatment now is you have to what seal off and fumigate a room. Is that how you do it? Um,
1: in many cases in Florida, they're doing fumigation. However, uh, there is heat treatment that's also available. Uh, but none of those provide long-term protection. As soon as you have the temperature go back to normal or release the gas, then the bed bugs can come back in again from someplace else. So the next time you stay at a motel, you may bring them back in, and it may, cost a, it may cost a lot of money in order to be able to get them controlled. So we're trying to come up with some solutions that people could put under uh, under the legs of their bed, or even in hotels and motels, it can be put a, put as a frame or uh, underneath the frame of the bed in order to catch bed bugs that are that are brought into the place.
0: Phil, if as you look back on your career, you know, starting in Philadelphia and going to North Carolina and then to Jacksonville and to Gainesville. Um, You know, what what sort of lessons uh, have you learned or what lessons would you impart to, say, a a younger version of you if you met them on the street, you know, a researcher? And in particular, you know, since at the Cade Museum, um, you know, we like to tell stories of inventions and inventors, particularly those who think that they've got a great idea, the idea may have market potential. um, You know, what what should they be thinking about uh, now or, you know, what what do you wish you had done if anything and what do you wish you hadn't done so that should be enough material in that question to go for quite a long time
1: okay well that one could go for for quite for a while days, right yeah as a matter of fact um, my advice to to kids is they they need to go to a college that they really uh re- that really fits their personality not every not every child is destined for the university of florida and not everybody that gets into the University of Florida is going to be able to adjust to the size of the university. Because I went to a small place like Catawba College uh, that had somewhere around 1,100 students, uh, which is you know, maybe the size of our department at the, at the University of Florida, um, it, it allowed me to be able to grow as a person with a small group that, uh, uh, that we all knew each other. And you can survive at the University of Florida if you have a small group. And like at the Entomology Department, we do a very good job of of taking care of our students uh, individually but there are other departments that have thousands of students in them. We have, we have probably 50 undergraduates and maybe 140 uh, graduate students. So we're a small department in the overall scheme of things at the University of Florida. And I think it's very important for, for kids to be able to find a place that they're comfortable with uh, based on their own personality. And even at the University of Florida, it's a big place. But if you get into a small department, then you have kind of a small feel to uh, to a big place.
0: As far as, uh, you know, a, a big invention, we we had a recent guest on here who said um, he he thought a lot of people uh, were focused on the, the short-term nature or the short-term desire to hit it big, out of, you know, uh, do something along the lines of it. <laughs> Uh, three to five years, and they've, and and his experience was much different. He said, "Look, if if you're not willing to invest fifteen or even twenty years into a project or a company or whatever, um, you know, you it's very unrealistic to think you're going to uh, succeed." Is, has that been your experience?
1: That's very much my experience. And as a matter of fact, uh, I got in, uh, I got into doing some of the patents and inventions. Uh, because you can go ahead and publish a scientific article and put it in a book on a shelf and nobody will ever use it. And I thought that 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 was a shame because a lot of good scientific research never gets implemented because the, the professor is being rated on how many publications he's able to get into scientific journals. And they really don't take much into account when they're evaluating you on how many things that you've tried to do to make sure that what you're doing is is really affecting people's lives to the positive. So so I kind of look at it that it's a long-term investment, and as a matter of fact, any time that you're dealing with uh, with insecticides and trying to contain them in a way that would be environmentally safe, there are a lot of hoops that you have to go through, and it's a long-term process and we started out way back in 2010 on the mosquito invention and uh, we still don't have EPA registration yet and part of the process was uh, was uh, were some things that happened that i would have never anticipated and one was that uh, that when we uh, what, what we try to do in, in that mosquito invention is put a surface on the inside of a container because container mosquitoes are extremely important for for people's health. Those container mosquitoes can transmit dengue, uh, Zika, uh, chikungunya, and of course yellow fever is coming back throughout the world. So those are container breeding mosquitoes. We can treat the uh, interior of a container have it the right color so the mosquitoes are attracted to it. So we have black and red as the colors that are are attracted. And then we have a polymer because insecticides break down very rapidly when they're in high humidity or in water conditions. So we have a polymer to slowly release the chemicals. The mosquitoes, then in order to lay eggs, they land on the side of the container Or they rest inside the container because they don't fly all the time. Uh, And then they die when they contact the insecticides. Or if they lay eggs before they die, then the larvae then die in the container as well. Well, to make a long story longer, (laughs) (laughs) uh, what happened was that EPA wants to know how long that insecticide is going to be at the right concentration when it's on the shelf. So you have to do a two-year study that you have to prove a two-year shelf life. Well, because we have a complex mixture, everyone that deals with insecticides always does gas chromatography in order to determine the amount of chemical that's in there. Gas chromatography does not work for complex mixtures like ours. So we spent probably two years doing the wrong thing trying to figure out what's wrong with, with this assay on why can't we measure the amount of insecticide that's in that container. And, and finally I got so frustrated I was, I was saying we need to use high pressure liquid chromatography, HPLC, in order to determine the concentration. And because the company that we're working with is run out of Italy, they found a lab in Italy that goes, "Yeah, there isn't any reason why you should have ever looked at gas chromatography for this. You should have done uh, HPLC right to begin with." <laughs> and, and so they, they did it. Everything came out fine. And now we're dealing with EPA, and again uh, that the the data has been submitted there. Mm-hmm. So is it a long? This is a long story. But guess what? Uh, it's not as long as right. the story that we've had in trying to commercialize this because you, you aren't going to make a fortune in a year. You aren't going to make a fortune in two years. And it probably is 15 to 20 years out that everything is going to work. We have players who are wanting to use this worldwide and we have one company has uh, 37,000 employees that does mosquito control throughout the world. They they look at this as something that will be integrated into their programs and will work very well with what they're currently doing. So they want to get a hold of it, but we're stuck with the regulatory hurdles right now in both the European Union and the U.S. and uh, China and Australia and all of those other places. <laughs>
0: So here's some free advice for you, Phil. When you give your acceptance speech at the National Academy of Inventors, repeat a lot of what you just said. Because I, I, I just heard the founder of that, Paul Sambor, one of the founders, um, talk about uh, exactly what you said, that the process of patenting and commercialization is a far more effective way to expand the body of knowledge. Um, because you gotta prove something works, um, as opposed to simply publishing something in an academic journal, which may or may not get read and then <laughs> may be forgotten about. But patenting by definition means you have to prove a certain standard and it's it's widely available, widely used, may be implemented. And so he argues all the time that inventors play this special role in expanding the body of knowledge as opposed to uh, just researchers. I mean, a lot of inventors are also researchers, but the inventors go that extra step of exactly what you just described of having to prove something. Actually works
1: you don't often think about it from the standpoint of science that the the proof of science is to publish in a peer reviewed journal, but the commercialization of that is a whole different process and and very much uh, very much different than what most academic people are used to dealing with. <laughs>
0: My final comment, uh, Phil, is I can't wait to win a barbed or a trivia uh, pursuit game by saying that uh, insects are actually attracted to blue and not yellow. So I, I know it's gonna. <laughs> if I just wait long enough, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win uh, some sort of argument somewhere. Phil, thank you very much for coming on Radio Cade. It's been very uh, interesting, and um, good luck and best of luck with your research and, and your product. Thank you. I'm Richard
1: Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum
0: for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood
1: Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.